Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing nuisance property ordinances. While this may not be a topic at the fore of everyone's minds, municipal ordinances can actually have devastating effects on the lives of individuals and the communities where they're implemented. I'm Megan Kogashal. And I'm Yosef Schaffel. We're online editors for the University of Chicago Law Review. For today's episode, we talked separately with Professor Vicki Bean, the Boxer Family Professor of Law at New York University School of Law and the former Commissioner of Housing, Preservation, and Development for the City of New York, and Professor Joseph Mead from the Cleveland Marshall College of Law and his graduate research assistant, Marissa Pappas. We also talked to Gretchen Arnold, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at St. Louis University. We're talking about ordinances today, and when I think of an ordinance, I'm thinking you need to move your car when it's snowing, or you need to you know, take your trash cans in. So what are we talking about? The nuisance ordinances that we're talking about today and that we talked to each of the professors about relate to those categories of activities. So regulations about picking up trash or like not making loud noises. But there's another aspect of a lot of these nuisance ordinances that have become more common over time, which is to fine landlords specifically or property owners for the activities of their tenants related to criminal behavior, like assaults, sexual assaults even, at properties that result in 911 calls. So a lot of these nuisance ordinances will set a threshold number of 911 calls that can be made from a given address within a certain amount of time. For example, in Milwaukee, that number is three 911 calls within 30 days. If more 911 calls than that are made from a specific address, the cities will designate that property a nuisance and the property owner is told to either abate the nuisance or pay a fine. When cities are considering enacting a nuisance ordinance, what do they lean on? What's their rationale? This is Professor Bean. They enact them in part to, you know, ensure that the streets are clean and that the recycling is done properly. So they're trying to improve the quality of life. They're also trying to put the costs of problems in terms of um, people's behavior on the the people who are actually causing the behavior rather than the taxpayers more generally. If you're not putting your trash out correctly and it attracts rats and other things, that's imposing costs on all of your neighbors, but it's also imposing costs on the taxpayers in general who have to, you know, send the sanitation workers to clean up more, that kind of thing. In part, it's to improve the quality of life and to put the burden of that on the people who are causing the problems. A lot of cities, particularly cities that have become more economically depressed over time and that are having trouble sort of making ends meet, justify these ordinances as a way to recoup the costs of policing from people who use more police services than the average person in the city. And then another common justification of the nuisance ordinances is it helps bring in landlords and make landlords more active in managing the properties that are under their control. Here's Professor Arnold. You know, a lot of cities, St. Louis City is one of these, has had a problem with the flight of the middle class. I think that a lot of people pass these laws to try to enforce certain standards of behavior on residents in a city and to force landlords to take responsibility for what happens on their property. You know, to some degree, it's an attempt to try to um, address the issue of absentee landlords. 
Another reason that's given for passing nuisance laws is to discourage 911 calls so that police departments can use their resources more efficiently. Now there the assumption is that there are a lot of unnecessary 911 calls that happen. And the third type of reason or justification that's given for nuisance laws is to recoup some of the cost of providing, quote, excessive, end quote, services to residents of the city. So again, there's the assumption that, that residents are calling 911 when they don't really need to. Many cities have undergone budget cuts in recent years. This is one way in which, by fining residents for calling 911, they can try to get some of that money back. The issue about police calls is, again, an attempt to make the the parties who are responsible for the problem bear the cost of that problem. That gets harsh, of course, when there's a perpetrator and a victim and you're imposing costs upon not the perpetrator or not just the perpetrator, but also upon the victim and also upon the victim's landlord. Professor Mead agrees that cities are often motivated by a need to reduce the costs of repeatedly providing emergency services to particular properties, but he also found evidence that some cities targeted their ordinances at specific populations. Cities state a concern about things like property values, community norms, enforcing enforcing community norms against sort of so-called troublemakers. Sometimes there is explicit racial or a class bias language used. I mean, there are some cities that are very kind of explicit about urban uh, immigrants, to use the language of some. Our study was looking at municipalities in the Cleveland uh, metropolitan area. And so Cleveland is, you know, highly segregated. And some of the cities that we looked at were either predominantly white or they were cities where there was a growing percentage of uh, people of color in the, the community. One of the cities, the mayor was particularly concerned about a increase in the African-American population. And so in response to a question about what is the city doing as far as addressing the mixture of the community, that's a quote, the mayor went on a long rant about middle-class values. We believe in neighborhoods, not hoods. African-American kids walking down the the street and bringing in that mentality from the inner city. Again, these are, are quotes from the mayor of the city justifying the nuisance law that they had just passed. Some cities, when they were passing their nuisance ordinance, uh, went out of their way to, to talk about how they were going to prioritize enforcement of the nuisance ordinance against properties where housing voucher holders were, were living. And in fact, they coordinated with our local housing authority to get the list of addresses to make sure that whenever a police report came in, they would compare that, the police report, to whatever address list they got from the housing authority and then target uh, the housing voucher holders um, with, with a nuisance enforcement. Is there any actual data, empirical data, on the impacts of these nuisance ordinances? You know, are people actually calling 911 less? Are they impacting certain groups more than others? While there are limited results, there have been some studies about the effects of nuisance property ordinances. I asked Professor Bean to comment on findings from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that the city's nuisance ordinance was disproportionately enforced in minority communities. This is an area where we really need more data and more empirical studies to document whether or not that is true and where it's true and how systematically it's true. But 
but certainly the anecdotal evidence is that if you're in a poor neighborhood, you're much more likely to get fined for things like trash on the street, etc. And because poverty is obviously strongly correlated with race, that that the kinds of fines that are being issued are more likely to be issued against a first of all a landlord as opposed to a single family um, homeowner or a an owner-occupied building, but also more likely in communities that are seeing a lot of policing for other reasons, maybe because crime is higher in those neighborhoods. It's not, you know, it's not just a problem of landlords or just a problem of um, rental buildings. Small businesses often complain as well that, you know, they're hit with, um, many fines about trash in front of their stores or um, garbage that, you know, somebody has opened and spread around or that kind of thing. And so you hear this as well, especially in poor neighborhoods um, from small business owners. But the issue is that if you have more police in an area, you have more policing activity in an area, then the scrutiny is increased and you're likely to be getting more violations written and that kind of thing. So the way I understand it is you have a few strikes and once you've called 911 too many times, you get penalized for doing it again. Are there exceptions to that rule? Like what if, you know, your father has a heart attack? Do you still get penalized for calling 911? So some nuisance ordinances will exclude calls that are specifically requesting emergency medical services. So if someone's having a medical emergency, like a heart attack, and they call for an ambulance, that wouldn't be counted towards a nuisance. But not all nuisance ordinances have these types of exceptions. In some situations, people are penalized for making calls for emergency medical services. Between 10 and 40 percent of the nuisance letters, depending on the city, in our sample were sent in response to somebody experiencing an overdose or having a mental health uh, crisis. It wasn't sort of the the real bad behavior that is offending a neighbor. Uh, It's oftentimes the people who live at these properties that were calling 911 or calling the police and seeking help for themselves that would trigger the nuisance designation. An area of particular concern for many researchers is the application of nuisance ordinances to situations involving domestic violence. There are two main categories in which a call for emergency assistance in the case of domestic violence would be counted towards a nuisance designation. The first is when a victim of domestic violence calls police either because the abuser is being threatening or violent, or if a victim calls the police for help enforcing an order of protection. So when you say enforcing order of protection, there could be, for example, a restraining order against a spouse. And if that spouse violates the restraining order, the one that called 911 um, to enforce the order would be penalized? Correct. Here's Marissa Pappas. We found that domestic violence was the most common reason why a nuisance notification would be sent to a property This is an unintended consequence as far as we know, but typically it acts out and a survivor will call police for help. Um, And in responding to that call, that would count as a strike against that property as far as, you know, so many strikes add up to a nuisance designation. A woman was basically punched in the face and this was the first strike for this property. Her property was sent a nuisance notice. 
the consequences of this, it often forces uh, domestic violence survivors to choose between housing or you know, getting help from police and emergency services. They really go against the spirit of criminal justice reforms that have been instituted since the 1980s. A lot of these reforms, pro-arrest laws or mandatory arrest laws, um, making civil orders of protection available for battered women, all of these were intended to provide more police and more court protection for victims of domestic violence. To give you the example of civil orders of protection, Victims of domestic violence can obtain these from a local court, but in order to get them enforced, you have to be able to call the police. If you have an order of protection that states, John is not to uh, come over to the place where you live or be within 50 feet of you or whatever it might say, uh, and if John shows up, then you need to be able to call the police uh, to have them come and arrest him for violating the order. Because nuisance laws tend to prevent women from calling the police, they, in essence, nullify uh, or make useless these civil orders of protection. Do we have any sort of narratives or anecdotal evidence of how victims of domestic violence have actually been impacted? Professor Arnold interviewed victims of domestic violence who explained the ways in which the nuisance property ordinance had played out in their day-to-day -day lives. Many women felt that they no longer had the right to call 911. They coped with this in various ways. Some of them barricaded themselves in their homes. This was something I hadn't anticipated before we started interviewing women, but we talked to several women who said that they had moved furniture and, and put other items in front of their doors so their abusers couldn't get in. Several of them asked male relatives to come stay with them to serve as personal bodyguards. And some of them, we talked to at least four women who indicated that they were ready to use violence. Now, what this means is that in practice, not being able to call 911 for police protection meant that the violence in these relationships could escalate. We heard this multiple times from the women we spoke with. They felt that the law was treating her as if she's the problem rather than, than the abuser and his behavior. In other words, all the legal scrutiny, uh, all the punishment is directed towards her making 911 calls rather than toward the violence that led her to call in the first place. What happens is that these laws construct the problem to be solved to be not the violence itself, but her multiple calls to the police. And they downgrade the actual violence to a, quote, nuisance. And what this does is it alters the category of victim and offender. It essentially reverses it. Nuisance laws turn the victim into the offender. She's the one now that's breaking the law. And it obscures the real crime that's going on of the intimate partner violence. Landlords also are kind of put in a bind here when they're deciding who to rent to, and that would inevitably seem to squeeze out people looking for housing. So what has the impact been on you know, stability of housing and availability of housing for crime victims and people who might come under this uh, nuisance ordinance? The people I talked to are actually pretty concerned about the impacts of these ordinances on housing instability. Professor Mead and Professor Arnold found that one of the most common outcomes of a nuisance citation is that a landlord will evict the tenant. 
Not only does this make it difficult for tenants who have been evicted, but it also makes landlords less willing to participate in the rental market because it increases the costs of being a landlord. When a landlord gets hit with a fine for, you know, let's say domestic violence calls, that they respond to that by evicting the tenant. If uh, a person calls because they're threatened with domestic violence, the police arrive, the police then tell the landlord um, or fine the landlord, and the landlord then evicts the tenant, then the, the victim of the domestic violence is now not just worried about the domestic violence, but now out on the street or out looking for a new apartment. So it can really undermine the need for protection that the victim you know, was seeking by even calling the police. Suddenly, your life is not just that you're threatened, but also that now you need to find a new place to live. It's a major contributor to that kind of instability. Not only did many of these women lose their housing, either they felt like they had to move before they were evicted, or they were actually evicted. But what happened after eviction was that many of them ended up homeless. We spoke to a number of women who had to go to shelters because they had nowhere else to go. Many of them ended up in generic homeless shelters. The lucky ones ended up in battered women's shelters. It was not uncommon that they ended up in uh, emergency shelters. Others had to endure dangerous and unstable living situations. For example, lived in their cars. Some of them had to move to more dangerous neighborhoods than they'd been living in before. Some of them had to couch surf among friends and family, and oftentimes these friends and family were in unstable housing. So, for example, we spoke with one woman who went to stay with a friend, and two weeks later, the friend was evicted. So then she ended up on the couch at her father's house. But, you know, this was not atypical. Landlords, when they are deciding who to rent to, is being a victim of domestic violence sort of a, a protected class, or can they explicitly discriminate against people that might cause this ordinance to apply to them? So there are federal and some local laws that prohibit discriminating on the basis of domestic violence or being the victim of domestic violence. Um, and I think there's actually a federal law that's been proposed recently to specifically make that domestic violence victim a protected class, but that's not the law currently. What happens is that a lot of landlords will see that maybe a woman has been evicted, and if the landlord finds out that it was because of domestic violence, a landlord might be more hesitant to rent to that person. So regardless of if a law exists or not, it seems like it's really hard to police situations where a landlord just doesn't want to rent to a victim of domestic abuse. There aren't much checks, and it seems to be in their discretion. Yeah, I think it is pretty discretionary. Um, and I think another aspect is that it's become a lot more common for landlords to use criminal background checks or other types of background checks to screen tenants. And so any sort of issues that come up, any ordinance enforcement against an individual or any other law enforcement activity on an individual's background check record can come across as a red flag that then a landlord will just decide that they don't want to deal with that situation and decide not to rent to a person. Right, because a landlord doesn't have to say why an applicant was rejected, right? They just have to say, you were not approved. Right. In the private housing market, it's pretty unchecked. Landlords quickly 
automatically learn that, okay, I'm going to be responsible for my tenant's behavior, so how can I screen to get tenants who won't cause these kinds of problems? Of course, you can't look at somebody's rental history or their resume or their application and say, this person is likely to be a victim of domestic violence or this person is likely to, you know, wash their cars on the street. Landlords use all kinds of stereotypes, all kinds of, you know, statistical correlations, et cetera, to make those determinations. That may make it all the harder for somebody with housing instability um, to find a place to live because they're now being screened out of available apartments because of assumptions about their propensity to be involved in domestic violence or to be a victim of domestic violence. There has been a push by both public officials as well as organizations of landlords to create databases so that uh, when a landlord is considering renting to uh, renting a, a place to a new tenant, they can check the database and find out what the uh, prospective tenant's rental history has been. And so it has become routine in a lot of parts of St. Louis, at least, that when someone is evicted, including for a nuisance law eviction, that her name is put on this list, or at least that's how some of the women explained it to us, that their name was on a list that said that they had called 911 too often, and so the new landlords didn't want to rent to them. Essentially, these women are blacklisted from renting apartments again. Many of the women had trouble finding a new place to rent. Some of them lost their Section 8 housing certificates or they lost their eligibility for subsidized public housing because they were evicted. Because of the, quote, nuisance, end quote, designation on their rental histories, oftentimes they had trouble renting other apartments in St. Louis City, as well as I understand around the country. As Professor Arnold and Marissa Pappas explained, the negative impacts of a nuisance citation and eviction extend beyond just housing. Once eviction happened, uh, some of the women were separated from their children during this period. They had no home for them to go to. Uh, Oftentimes, they had to ask relatives to keep the kids. You know, with all the turmoil in their lives, not only was it emotionally difficult for these women as mothers to be separated from their children, but you can imagine the impact that this had on the children. Uh, At this time, not only were they not living with their mothers, but they were being shunted around from one place to another. A second uh, kind of problem that these women ran into was that the eviction itself could trigger or could exacerbate existing mental and physical health problems. It would sometimes compound the trauma of the abuse itself. Instability has been linked to uh, worsened mental health and uh, suicide. Eviction can have effects on the academic success of children in that household. It's it's really a snowball effect so that the effects of the nuisance designation are felt, you know, years after when that nuisance designation or eviction happens. What's the perspective of police on these ordinances? Because I imagine if you're going to be penalized and calling 911, they're getting less 911 calls. So are they thinking oh, great, there's less crime? Or are they thinking there's the same amount and we just don't know about it? 
What Professor Arnold understood from her interviews with police and prosecutors, it seems like they understand reduced 911 calls to mean that there's a reduction in crime, not just that people are afraid of calling 911 because they're worried about losing their housing, for example. The way that Professor Arnold understood this was that police officers and prosecutors only see crime victims at their first step of contact with law enforcement, so right after they call 911. And so they don't see the way that ordinances can play out down the line in people's day-to-day lives. I think it was a prosecutor who told us in one of these interviews, he said that they, the prosecutors, thought the law was effective, quote, because we rarely see the same victim twice, end quote. The goal of law enforcement is to establish social order, which means to stop nuisance behavior. And for them, the way in which they could determine that nuisance behavior had stopped was the end of 911 calls. From their point of view, they felt that tenants' rights laws protected tenants from illegal evictions. During an interview, the police told us, hey, if she thinks she's being unfairly evicted, all she has to do is call the police and we'll take care of it. You can imagine how likely a victim is to call the police when it's because she's called the police that she's being evicted. So another concern is that these ordinances might conflict with federal statutory or constitutional law. There are three main avenues that I talked to Professor Bean and Professor Mead about, and those are potential claims under the Fair Housing Act, the First Amendment, and due process. The concern about the Fair Housing Act, which which makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity or disability in housing or housing-related services, the argument would be that if a city issues fines that disproportionately affect tenants of color or people of color or families, people with disabilities, et cetera, um, that that would trigger scrutiny under the Fair Housing Act. Obviously, if there was any evidence that the fines were levied or, or designed in a way that was intentionally discriminatory, intending to be used primarily against people of color, for example, you know, that would be an automatic uh, trigger. But more likely, what this kind of litigation would allege is that they have a discriminatory impact on tenants and tenants of color. It prohibits both laws that have a discriminatory intent and those that have a a disparate impact that uh, can't really be justified by the unit of government. There have been a couple of challenges brought alleging disparate impact theories against cities that have been applying their nuisance laws against survivors of domestic violence on the rationale that most survivors of domestic violence are women. And so enforcement of the nuisance law in that way has a disparate impact that isn't really justified by any um, valid reason. The other kind of federal law that's at play is the Violence Against Women Act. Now, I will say that the the cases on alleging this theory are relatively mixed. They haven't been as successful as you might think, asserting the Federal Fair Housing Act uh, challenge based on the domestic violence enforcement. More recent litigation has focused on 
the way that these laws are being used primarily to target people of color. And so there has been some litigation recently arguing that enforcement of criminal activity nuisance laws has a disparate impact. Studies out of Illinois, Milwaukee, New York, uh, Missouri that have documented that uh, law enforcement is more likely to send a nuisance designation if the property is located in a community of color. That's going to be hard litigation to bring. It's going to be hard litigation to win. I don't have any evidence that in enacting the legislation, the legislators specifically intended or specifically even contemplated the effect that it might have on domestic violence. Certainly, keeping the streets clean, those kinds of things are legitimate and important governmental interests. It's going to be hard to disprove that or to prove that it's a pretext. It will be hard to articulate exactly how the system should change to ensure no disparity, no disparate impact on, on, let's say, people of color. The First Amendment theory is that you have a right to, uh, I mean, literally petition the government for redress of grievances. Um, you have a right to ask the government for help without being penalized for doing so. And so the ACLU, uh, for example, has brought a couple of successful suits um, that have prevailed on this First Amendment theory as it applies to nuisance enforcement against survivors of domestic violence, and um, I believe also people experiencing a mental health crisis. Professor Arnold also discussed due process concerns. What landlords did was that they often gave the women little or no advance notice. They would simply show up and tell them that they were in violation of the nuisance law, and for that reason, they had to move out. We heard from advocates that these evictions were done in a very informal manner. Landlord would simply say, you've got to get out. Uh, You're violating a nuisance law. In other words, you're breaking the law. The implication was that any lease you might have is no longer uh, enforced. You don't have any protection. You've just got to get out. Even though the tenant's the one who, A, is kind of being accused of wrongdoing, and B, is at risk of, of, you know, potentially facing eviction proceedings, the tenant has no right in in many of these law ordinances to, to actually participate in the challenge. The theory is, I think, that, well, hey, you know, the property owner is the one who ends up paying the nuisance fine, so why does the tenant need to participate? There have been some due process challenges brought because, you know, effectively what happens is the landlord has no real incentive to fight a nuisance designation because it's cheaper for them just to evict the tenant and find somebody who's going to be less troublesome. The tenant, who does have the incentive and has the knowledge, isn't able to participate. It kind of excludes the people most affected from from the process. So what's actually being done here? Any action been taken at the state or federal level? Yeah. Amendments to exclude domestic violence from nuisance ordinances are becoming more common nationwide. Several states have also adopted eviction defense laws for survivors of domestic violence, and some states even have laws protecting the right to call police for emergency assistance for those experiencing domestic violence. Basically, how municipalities define which activities will be counted as a nuisance 
when they list specific offenses, cities can also specifically exclude things like drug overdoses or like domestic violence. But there's some concern that even when cities exclude specific acts, they can be inadvertently swept in under another heading. I haven't seen any silver bullet. What happened in St. Louis City in November of 2016, the city passed a modification to its nuisance law that is uh, called a carve-out. What it does is essentially say the law can be enforced as usual except against victims of domestic violence. This is a nice step, and it might make a difference in a few cases. But the problem with it is that Um, domestic violence cases can very often be reclassified as something else. So instead of classifying them as domestic violence, you can classify them as peace disturbance or some sort of assault. In other words, it's not a uniformly effective kind of solution. So what would happen is if the police responded to a domestic violence call, they could say it wasn't domestic violence, but it was just a disturbance of the peace. Right. And I don't think it would be intentional. It would just be police are responding to a call and don't realize they need to specifically make an exception for domestic violence. And so they would code it as disorderly conduct, not really realizing what the implications of that would be for a victim of domestic violence. And that would lead to the problems that we've talked about. Our guests noted that due to the lack of clear solutions for how to use nuisance laws without the negative unintended consequences of enforcement that we've been discussing, cities should carefully consider the drawbacks before implementing them. Cities that are contemplating these nuisance ordinances or that are thinking about refining theirs really need to pay attention to the unintended consequences question. If they, you know, penalize landlords, then they may drive up the cost of housing. They may make it more difficult for some people to get housing. That imposes horrendous costs on those people, but it also imposes costs on the city. If if people can't find housing and they're homeless or housing becomes so expensive that you don't have a diverse city, you don't have a diverse workforce, those are, are costs that the city itself will bear. You need to really be thinking through If I impose this cost upon a property owner, what's likely to happen to the cost of rental housing? What's likely to happen to the screening mechanisms that landlords use? And and how will that affect my city? And how will it affect um, the poorest and, and sort of most vulnerable people? I think there are ways for cities to potentially mitigate part of the effect, but I've yet to see evidence of a city passing a nuisance law and implementing it in a way that didn't raise concerns. The ACLU, for example, when they've sued over laws like these in other states, sometimes they'll accept the settlement with a significant revision of the nuisance law. But really, the the goal in a lot of this litigation is to remove the nuisance laws from the book, particularly when they have a, a history, a legislative history of this you know, racial bias that really has no place staying on the books, even if it might be able to be applied in a neutral way. It, it's the motive. It just taints the whole thing. And I think there are just so many problems and so little upside that I think cities need to give a careful look at what they're doing and, and really decide if it's worth risking 
uh, all of these problematic applications for a benefit that is, you know, minimal or, or, or null. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Thank you to all of our guests who joined us for this episode. Follow us on Twitter at UchiLRev. More episodes of this podcast can be found online on our blog at lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu. Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. This episode was produced by Joseph Schaffel. Music was provided by bensound.com.